Hi, I'm Maya. I'm an executive coach and researcher. Welcome to The Golden Hour, the podcast focused on elevating your career whilst also nourishing your well-being and relationships. From career transition, job crafting and getting promoted to physical, mental and digital well-being, I've coached hundreds of leaders and researched these topics. There's no one size fits all here which is often why there seems to be such a big gap between what we know and what we do. But by using evidence-based approaches to help you think deeply about your priorities and habits, we can close that gap on the things that matter the most. Hello and welcome to episode four of The Golden Hour. Today, I am delighted to introduce our guest, Nir Ale. Nir is the author of two best-selling books, Hooked and Indistractable, which we'll be talking about in the episode. And so much of this episode contains matters relating to golden hours, whether it is about the scheduling of your time, and he even talks about the need to schedule leisure time, whether it is about time management as pain management, and also what is the opposite of distraction? Because we often talk about what's distracting us, but do we really know what it's distracting us from? So without further ado, let's get to the episode. I am so pleased to be talking to you today, Nir, and I've given an intro to the listeners from your bio already, but it would be fantastic to hear in your words a little bit more about yourself and the work that you do, and also if it has changed during the pandemic, that would be interesting to hear. Sure, yeah. Well, so thank you so much for having me, Maya. It's great to be with you, and uh, I've admired your work, and it's been great hearing your take on this subject. So it's, I feel like we're kind of kindred spirits here in this big uh, <laughs> uh, expanding field of behavioral design and, and trying to understand the role of technology in society today. And I think you know, our focus around how the individual interacts with technology is... is uh, uh, super interesting and uh, super unresolved. <laughs> there are so many questions yet to be answered in this field. And so uh, my area of study uh, for the past several years, so I used to teach at Stanford at the Graduate School of Business mm -hmm. there. And then later I moved into the Hassel Platner Institute of Design where I taught behavioral design. So how do you help people build habits to improve their lives through the products and services they use, mostly through tech products was my focus. So uh, I wrote my first book, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, which was essentially a guide to how companies like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, WhatsApp, Snapchat, uh, how these companies use the, the, the psychology of behavioral design to help people form habits with their products. And the idea behind the book wasn't to you know, tell them how to do it. They already know how to do it. Yeah. <laughs> My goal was to steal their secrets, so to speak, so that uh, all kinds of companies can build healthy habits with their users. And that's exactly what's happened over the past several years. I profile in my book, uh, Hooked, I talk about Fitbod, which is a company that helps people build a habit of exercising in the gym. Uh, I talk about uh, Kahoot, which is a company I'm, I'm very proud to be involved in. Uh, the founder, Johan, called me up about five years ago after reading Hooked 
and said, uh, hey, I've re- I read your book and I have this idea for a hook that I can use to help kids build habits around online education. And he started this company, Kahoot, that today is worth over $3 billion, mm. publicly traded company, that is all about getting kids hooked to learning. Uh, so, you know, every conceivable industry, health and wellness, to patient adherence, to SaaS companies, any kind of business that needs people to come back uh, to use their product or service to build a, a habit out of that product, that's the kind of, of, of companies that read my book. So Hooked is all about how to build good habits. And then a few years ago, I wanted to explore the other side. I wanted to understand how do we break the bad habits uh, for a few reasons. One, I yeah. found in my own life that I was getting distracted by these tech, these very technologies that I was studying, mm. and I wanted to understand why. And I think my knee-jerk reaction is one that most people have, where they blame the technology, right? It, yeah. It's uh, my smartphone that's doing it to me. Yeah. <laughs> and so I decided to take the advice of you know the experts, and so so to speak, experts, and I got rid of the technologies. <laughs> I did a digital detox, and I tried digital minimalism, and I got rid of all the technology. And you know what? I was still distracted. <laughs> I, would, <laughs> yeah. I would say, oh, you know, there's that book I've been meaning to, to look into, or let me just clean up the trash here, or let me just organize my desk. And I kept getting distracted, which is why yeah. I realized that the problem is not just about our technologies. It's not just our phones and Facebook and, you know, the internet. It's, this is a, a very old problem that, in fact, uh, Plato talked about this problem 2,500 years ago. He called it akrasia, the tendency yes. to do things against our better interest. And it's so distraction is not a new problem. And in fact, uh, what what I learned was is that you know the the solutions that uh, uh, you know the, the 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 people who say it's just technologies fall technologies hijacking our brains they don't know what they're talking about. That in fact technology yeah. you know is not the ultimate source of distraction. And if we don't understand the deeper psychology of distraction, we will always be slaves to one thing or another. So that's what Indistractable is all about. It's not just about technology distraction, even though that's what people think is distracting them more than other things these days. Uh, so there's you know a lot of focus on those yeah. distractions, but really it's about the deeper psychology of why don't we do what we say we're going to do. And that's what I love about Indistractable is that you focus on both the internal triggers and the external triggers. And by the way, when you were saying that, I was laughing to myself because I was thinking, you know, we've all done that, haven't we? Where you delete you, you delete your Instagram, you delete your Twitter, and suddenly your mail icon is so interesting to you, isn't it? And it's just, it, there's always going to be something unless you get deeper inside it. And that's what's really interesting about thinking about your internal triggers. I find that really helpful. Right. Yeah. The, yeah. And, and in fact, there's been more and more research that shows, I just saw a study two weeks ago uh, that was published that uh, they tracked that 90% of the time we check our phones, 90, 90% of the time that we check our phones, it's not because of an external trigger. It's not because of a ping, a ding, a ring. It's because of what's mm-hmm. going on inside of us, uh, which yeah. is the big revelation for me from, from writing Indistractable over the past five years was that distraction begins from within. That 90% of the time we check our phone, it's because we're feeling bored, lonesome, indecisive, fatigued, uh, fearful, uncertain. It's these uncomfortable emotional states that, look, people have been experiencing and dealing with since time immemorial. So if you're dealing with that discomfort with too much booze, too much news, too much football, too much Facebook, it doesn't matter. The source is this discomfort that begins from within. And so we're just putting on Band-Aids if we think, oh, you know, turn off notifications, grayscale your phone. Give me a break. Come on. <laughs> That's not, yeah. That can't be yeah. the solution. 
It's not going to be the solution. I mean, I guess you make your life easier by doing these little tricks, don't you? But if you want to really address it, then you need to go deeper. The other the other thing I really like is when you talk about time management as pain management. Because, you know, I've heard about time management being talked about as energy management. And, you know, it, it's it's not always helpful, is it, to, to use the phrase time management because it makes it sound like it's just a question of tick boxing which it's not, it's time boxing, which you're going to talk to us about. But I love that. I love the idea that there is this idea of pain management because I recently completed a thesis and that was painful, you know, and even though it was in positive psychology and we talk about concepts like flow, which the idea is that once you eliminate all your distractions and you're in the zone, it's meant to be a wonderful experience. It's not meant to be painful. So I remember sitting there thinking to myself, well, why am I in pain here? You know, mm, well, why yeah. am I not in some sort of, you know, having flow? And I think it's just nice to hold that and, and remember that if you do want to master some of the things that you want to master, there is an element of pain management. I think it helps you to just be able to sit with it more to use that language. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I'd love to ask you actually, as someone who's, who's researched flow deeply, you know, flow... Uh, has always bothered me because Csikszentmihalyi, <laughs> as far as I know, and you you know much more about this than I do, it always seemed like, uh, what's that line about showbiz, yeah, right? It's nice work <laughs> if you can get it. Yeah. Uh, but, but prescribing it, it's like, you know, how do I succeed in Hollywood? Well, just get famous, right? Yeah. Okay, well, nice work if you can get it. And I always yeah, or do sense. what you love. Even do what you love is like nice work if you can get it sometimes. Right, right. right? And I always felt like flow is a little bit like that. Like when Csikszentmihalyi yeah. talks about flow, he talks about these experiences that surfers have and that professional basketball players have. And, you know, those things have something in common, which are that they are fun. <laughs> How mm -hmm. do I get into flow when I'm doing my taxes? Right? How yeah. do I get into flow when something really sucks? and I, I'm yep. not having fun. Did you figure that out? <laughs> well, I, I don't think there was, there, there's a lot when it comes to flow. So there's actually the dark side of flow, right? So even when we think about the social media and technology and gaming, and some of the things that you're talking about in that hooked process, there are things that are drawing on the darker side of flow because you're giving feedback and you're giving reward. And that's all part of, you know, what's important in flow. So flow I don't think it's straightforward. I think at a basic level, for example, with my four-year-old, he will be in flow doing washing up. And, and I'm so pleased that they trained him so well that he now likes to do washing, you know, household tasks. So I think building concentration and finding your sweet spot is fantastic. And you probably have your your activities where, where you know you are in flow. I, I hope everybody has some, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think it's just I like acknowledging that not not all great work is going to get you into that state. And the other thing is that it does have criteria. So uh, you need feedback with flow. So reading is not flow. Running is not flow because unless you're doing that barefoot running where you're getting this feedback from immediate feedback from the ground and you're you're really having to employ all of your senses to stay on balance it's not, it wouldn't be considered flow. So it has specific definitions. And I, and I think, like you say, it's great, but I think it needs to be qualified with the idea that 
we're not all going to be spending all our time in flow. I do think you can get flow from an Excel spreadsheet though. Mm. If you, so it's if really you about the right this- tool for the job. Maybe it's not, uh, yeah, and I think this is kind of the problem with pop psychology is that we expect one tool to solve every challenge. And maybe the lesson here is, you know what? Sometimes flow is great. Sometimes it's not, you know, I think that I have this beef with habits right now, even though I, you know, I, I, I wrote a book about how to build habit forming products. I kind of feel like we've reached peak habit in a way. I don't know if you've noticed <laughs> this, but you know, people want to build habits around everything. And I think it's become kind mm-hmm. of code in, in kind of the same way that flow has become code for, oh, I want to turn this into a habit, which really means I want to do something I don't enjoy that's really hard to do, but I, I want to do it effortlessly. And mm. that's not always possible, right? And I think that what, the reason is, okay, well, that's just semantics. Who cares, right? It, it doesn't meet the criteria of the definition of a habit as an impulse done with little or no conscious thought. Maybe not, but what's the big deal? And I think the, the problem is that when we tell people, oh, you can turn anything into flow, you can turn anything into a habit, uh, and then that's not the case, they don't turn on the expert and the guru and the technique, they turn on themselves, Right. So like, for example, yeah. you know, I agree yeah. with you. I, I don't think writing, for example, can ever be a habit because if the definition of a habit is a behavior done with little or no conscious thought, I don't know about you. I've never, I've written two bestsellers, countless articles. <laughs> writing is never something I do with little or no conscious thought. It is hard freaking work. And all I want to do is go check the news or Facebook or watch a video on YouTube and do anything but the hard work of writing. Uh, it's not going to be a behavior done with little or no conscious thought. Uh, it's not flow either. It's hard work. And I think habits and flow are the antithesis of deliberate practice, right? When we think about, you know, the 10,000 hour rule and all that, that is the Mm. exact opposite of habits and flow. You can't have both at the same time. I don't think because you're not getting better at something Mm. unless you're deliberately thinking about it. Whereas flow requires you not to think about it. Habits require you not to think about it. And so the problem is when a behavior is difficult to do, right? 30 days, 60 days, whatever the you know magic number du jour is of number of days that people think that they're going to form a habit. And then somebody turns around and says, wait a minute, this isn't easy, right? This exercise thing still sucks. Writing still is hard. I'm still not, you know, this isn't easy. I'm not in flow. Yes. This isn't a habit. They think that there's something broken about them. Yeah. And I think that's, that's where it's sad. You know, and that's when yeah. we, we yeah. people start. And that's why I think it's so great that in what you write and talk about, you do talk about self-compassion and be kind. And I think it's very hard to exercise that, but it, it's really important that whenever we're talking about these things, that we, we remember that because like you say, otherwise you can shoot your own self in the foot. I wonder if there's also another distinction when it comes to habit about a habit and a practice, because, yeah, you know, right. what you described with the writing sounded more like a practice. So hopefully you have cultivated the practice of writing or a writing practice, a writing practice. Right. So I would call it a routine. A routine is defined as a yeah. series of behaviors frequently repeated. Yeah. So a practice, a routine, sure. But I think- A ritual. Know, part, part, yeah. Yeah. Ritual. <clears throat> I think part of what I talk about in Indistractable is that feeling bad isn't bad. That I think we kind of yeah. fetishize happiness in our society. Yeah. That somehow we think that we're supposed to, I mean, think of how many self-help books have happy in the title why is that the case? Why do we have this ridiculous notion that we're supposed to be happy all the time? I mean, it makes no sense. Like our species did not evolve to be happy (laughs) constantly. Happiness is supposed to be fleeting. You know, pleasure is supposed to be a temporary sensation. Our default state is disquietude. And that's a good thing, 
right? If we can harness it as rocket fuel to lead us towards what we want to do, as opposed to what I think a lot of people do, which is try and escape it with distraction. Yeah. I think you and I are very much on the same page there. I really do challenge when people say, you'll know when you're on the right path, everything will feel effortless. I completely disagree. I, I tore my hair out last year on this master's and I'm so proud, but it was n- there was nothing about it that <laughs> felt, you know, sort of smooth and easy. It's just an example. Ironically, the master's is in positive psychology. And so what you're talking about is really interesting because they've had waves of evolution. In, in It's a young science. And actually, increasingly, they want to be embracing that dark side. And well, you know, the darker emotions, It's it, you don't want to even categorize them as positive and negative. But there was initially a bit too much focus on on those positive emotions because they they can be really helpful. Positive emotions, they they you know they can make us more creative and optimistic and open to opportunities. But as you say, if one expects that that's how one should feel, that's when it can start to become very difficult. And if that becomes a guide in the way that you then spend your time or whatever that that. So I've learned a lot from from what you say on this because I think we need to practice sitting with those more uncomfortable feelings. So I find that really helpful. I love the way you talk about traction. And I was wondering if you could explain and share with the listeners a little bit about the distinction between traction and distraction, because I think what you do so well is make us think about the word traction more and bring that more to the fore. You know, I'm very much into the power of words. I think it's really important that we understand uh, what the words we use actually mean. And to be honest, I didn't understand what distraction really even was, you know, what what the word really meant. Uh, And the way I know I didn't know what it meant was when I tried to understand what is the opposite of distraction. If you ask Mm. most people what is the opposite of distraction, they'll tell you right off the bat it's focus, right? The opposite Mm. of distraction is focus, except it's not. If Mm. you look at the origin of the word, the opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction that both words come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And they both end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction, by definition, is any action that pulls you towards what you intend to do, things that move you closer to your values and help you become the kind of person you want to become. Those are acts of traction. The opposite of traction is, of course, distraction. Distraction is any action that pulls you further away from what you plan to do, further away from what you intended to do, further away from your goals and becoming the kind of person you want to become. So the reason this is so important, this isn't just semantics, but the reason this is so important is because I believe any action can be an act of traction or distraction. And the difference is one word, and that one word is forethought. So let me give you a perfect example. My daily routine before I wrote Indistractable was to wake up, go to work, sit down at my desk and say, okay, I've got this big thing I got to get done today. You know, this thing on my to-do list that I haven't done, that I've been procrastinating on, that I've constantly been distracted from doing. Okay, today's the day I'm going to do it. Nothing's going to get in my way. I'm not going to get distracted. Here I go. Let me get started right now. But first, let me just check some email, (laughs) right? Let me just check that, that, do that worky task that, hey, I have to do anyway. Isn't email kind of a productive thing? I have to do it at some point, right? That's a work task. And I would justify to myself and allow distraction to trick me into prioritizing the urgent at the expense of the important. 
And that is the most dangerous form of distraction, the kind that tricks us into justifying doing the kind of things we did not intend to do. And if it is not what you plan to do with your time, it is by definition a distraction. Even if it's a work-related task, it's what I call pseudo work because it is just <laughs> as pernicious of a distraction. Now, just as anything can become traction, I'm sorry, just as anything can be a distraction, anything can be traction. So I uh, take a hard pass on any of these tech critics that we hear from today that tell us, oh, uh, this technology, it's hijacking your brain, it's addicting you, these video games, oh my goodness, they're just so bad for you, social media, worst thing ever, rubbish, rubbish. <laughs> it does nothing but serve the tech company's interest when we tell people that they are powerless to resist this technology. It is corrosive that we allow uh, that type of mindset because it leads to learned helplessness. Because the fact of the matter is, there's nothing wrong with any of it. It's not addicting you. It's not, I mean, it, some people it does, just like alcohol is highly addictive. But does everybody who has a glass of wine with dinner an alcoholic? Of course not. Some people are, but the vast majority of us are not addicted to social media, for God's sakes. Give me a break. And frankly, there's nothing wrong with it as long as you use it on your schedule and according to your values. So the time you plan to waste is not wasted time. You know, I challenge anybody to tell me why watching a football game on TV is somehow morally superior to playing a video game. There's nothing wrong with either, as long as it's done on your schedule according to your values. So the difference between traction and distraction is forethought, that if you plan that time, mm -hmm. enjoy it. It's not a distraction. But if it's not what you intend to do with your time, now it's a distraction. So now we have kind of a visual in our head, right? We have traction to the right, we have distraction to the left. Now we have to ask ourselves, well, what prompts us to traction and distraction? And this is where the triggers come into play. So here we have the external triggers and the internal triggers. The external triggers mm -hmm. are, of course, the pings, the dings, the rings. So the external triggers are all the things in our outside environment. It's not just the pings and dings. It's also our kids, right? It's, other, it's our coworkers. It's anything in our outside environment that can lead us off track. And then we have the internal triggers, which we talked about a little bit. Very, very important. That is actually where we begin our journey to becoming indistractable, is learning tools to master those internal triggers. And now we're just going to work our way around the four points of this compass, so to speak, where we start at the top mastering the internal triggers, then we make time for traction, then we hack back the external triggers, and then finally we prevent distraction with packs. And when we use these four techniques in concert, this is how we become indistractable. And so these techniques, this isn't just, you know, I, I, I can't stand these self-help books where it's, you know, hey, this worked for me, it's going to work for anyone. Uh, no, I, I want to see the peer-reviewed studies, right? And so the book is full of 30 pages, the, the, the appendix is 30 pages of citations from peer-reviewed journals. And many of these techniques have been around for a very, very long time. Like you mentioned, time boxing, psychologists call it uh, setting an implementation intention, which is a mm. fancy way of saying planning out what you're going to do and when you're going to do it. Uh, I draw upon acceptance and commitment therapy and CBT and all kinds of different techniques to give you a plan that you can use, anyone can use, your kids can use, your spouse can use to become indistractable, which is just about doing what you say you're going to do. Because, you know, I think the challenge that so many of us have today is that we think we don't know what to do, but that's not true, right? Who doesn't know that if they want to get in shape, they have to eat right and exercise, do we need to buy a diet book for that? We know that. Does anybody not know that if we want better relationships with the people we love, we have to be fully present, right? Does anybody not know that? If we want to do better at our job, we have to do the work, especially the hard stuff that other people don't want to do. We all know what to do. 
What we don't know is how do we stop getting in our own way? How do we stop getting distracted? So that's why I call becoming indistractable the skill of the century. It's the macro skill that allows us to do all the other things in our life that we're not getting done. So, you know, I hear from people who say, oh, I want to read your book, uh, but I've got such a long line of books uh, to read. Well, you know, that means indistractable should be the next book you read because that's the macro skill. Right? <laughs> or or yeah. folks who say, oh, I have a to-do list a mile long that I can't seem to get done. Okay, that's because you don't understand the skill of becoming indistractable. Or I have no time for my kids, my spouse, my body, my health, whatever. That's why, because you're not doing what yeah. you yourself know you should. And, and by the way, I'm not here to tell anybody what they should do with their time. That's not my goal. My goal is to help people do whatever they want to do with their time. Yeah. Yeah. But I love that. I love the idea that you're helping people unlock that, unlock that focus. I, like you say, is not necessarily the right word, but being able to employ the, the different techniques together. And it's been, it's been nice actually re-listening um, to those techniques. I don't think it's something that you just listen to once uh, and at any one time, something may be more or less important to you. So at some point you might feel that the external triggers are are more significant and they need monitoring. Another time it may be more the internal triggers. And so I think that's really interesting. The other thing I would love, and you've started to segue into that to hear more about, is this concept of time boxing. And if I was to, and you can correct me, if I was to try and summarize it, I would say it is about assigning your activities to certain times of the day, but these are, you know, activities that are very much aligned with your values. And you take that a step further and suggest three domains that we do that across, which would be self, work, and, and relationships. Um, so I would love to hear a little bit more about time boxing, but then how you do time boxing now, that sure. would really interest me. And then also how you would differentiate it from something like time blocking, uh, which is another phrase that is used uh, out there. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think the, um, uh, th this is an area. So Cal Newport and I, uh, you know, he's great. He, he blurred my book, he endorsed the book and we agree about most things. We do agree about this time blocking, time boxing idea. And it's been around way before Cal, way before me, this has been around for decades now, this idea of, of making an implementation intention, planning out what you're going to do and when you're going to do it. Cal and I don't agree on everything. I think he thinks that technology is much more sinister and that it's, you know, manipulating mm. people and we need to go, you know, he calls his book Digital Minimalism. And, and I think that's not the right approach that uh, I think it, it moralizes technology as something evil and bad. And I, I don't think that's true. It's a tool like any other. Uh, and, and, you know, they're, they're, we, we can use them as opposed to letting them use us. Uh, so I think I'm much more optimistic and for personal empowerment rather than, you know, making people, giving people a guilt trip about, being on Facebook, you know, if it serves you, it's mm. great. Uh, it's about using these things with intent. But I think, um, you know, what, what I want to help people do is turn their values into time. Uh, you know, I, I read uh, Cal's first book uh, on, not his first, but one of his books, Deep Work, which I was really inspired by. And I wanted very practical, the next book to be very practical. And so that's why I, I wanted to write Indistractable because, you know, it, he talks about here, you know, time boxing is important. We both agree. But how do I do that? Like, how do I really yeah. do that? And so what I wanted to do was to give people very actionable steps for how to actually use this, you know, time-tested technique and well-researched technique of time blocking. So the way we do it is first by understanding why it's important. Why is time blocking so important? Because you cannot call something a distraction 
unless you know what it distracted you from. Let me say that again. You cannot call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. So if you're running around all day, I, uh, you know, breathlessly saying, oh, I'm so distracted. You know, do you see what happened in the news? My kids want this. My boss wants that. I can't seem to get anything done. My to-do list, nothing gets done on my to-do list. If you can't show me your calendar and tell me how you want to, to spend your time, you have no right to complain. Because everything is a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. You have to be able to show me your calendar and say, ah, you see, I wanted to do X and I ended up doing Y. Okay. Yep. That is the only way to know the difference between traction and distraction is to plan ahead. So I have a question there, which is what I, what I love about time boxing according to those different categories is that it also means that when you're not time boxed to do your work, you know, when you're with your family or then, then you, you don't do your work. So you yes. also give that equal focus. Yes. And that leads me to think, especially in, in current times in like in the UK with the homeschooling and things like that, we can think of all the distractions that are coming our way. But if we have spent time on our values and we've actually realized that a big part of our values is our kids and our you know families, then maybe we don't need to see homeschooling as such a, a distraction, for example, maybe actually that we can see it more as attraction. I'm not saying, you know, it's everyone, it's different for everyone, but I'm trying to see if we can reframe things, you know. Absolutely. I mean, this is, this is the thing, you know, the problem, you know, the, the, the majority of people who, who uh, espouse time management techniques, they, they tell people to keep to-do lists. And I'm not anti-to-do list per se. I mean, I'm all for getting stuff out of your head and onto a piece of paper or you know, putting the things you need to get done somewhere. The problem is if you run your life on a to-do list, if the first thing you look to when you ask yourself, wait, what am I supposed to get done today is a to-do list instead of a calendar, you have already lost the war. You're done. Because running your life on a to-do list is pretty much the worst thing you can do from a time management perspective. Because one of the reasons, there are many reasons, one of them is that it allows you no headspace for leisure. Very few people out there have ever experienced in their adult life what real leisure feels like. You know why? Because they keep a to-do list that's a mile long of all the things that they didn't get done today. And so when they have some time with their kids, when they want to just relax on the couch and watch a movie, when they want to do leisure activities, in the back of their heads, they're thinking, oh, but I still didn't do this and I still didn't do that and my to-do list is still not done. And they don't know what the breath of fresh, of relief feels like when you just do what it is you said you're going to do. Play with your kids and don't feel guilty about not looking at your phone, <laughs> right? Because it's that guilt yeah. of, oh, I should be doing something else. I should be somewhere else mentally that makes us, that's the internal trigger that makes us check our phone 100 times a day. Yeah. But it's only when you say to yourself, no, right now, traction is defined as spending time with my kids. And anything else, anything else is a distraction. It's only by defining that in advance. And that includes, hey, you want to play a video game? Awesome. Play a video game. Great. And you know what? Doing anything else is a distraction if you plan to play video games for that hour. But you have to yeah. define that in advance. So how do you define it? How do you know how to spend your time? So this is where, uh, where I talk about turning your values into time, why values are so important. And values, what, what's the definition of values? Again, I'm, I'm very much into defining words. Values are defined as attributes of the person you want to become. Attributes are defined as attributes of the person you want to become. So you have to ask yourself, how would the person I want to become spend their time in these three life domains 
of you, you're at the center of these three life domains, your relationships, and finally your work. So you have to ask yourself, how would the person I want to become spend time on themselves based on your values? How much time would the person you want to become spend on personal development, on reading, on rest? I mean, who, we all know that rest is very important for our psychological and physiological well-being. How many people do you know with a bedtime, right? If we all know sleep is important, what, we tell our kids that they need a bedtime. How many adults have a bedtime? I have a bedtime. It's on my schedule. It's on my calendar. I know <laughs> I got to go to bed at a certain time, which means that 30 minutes before bedtime, I need to brush my teeth. I need to take a shower. I need to do all these things so that I can be in bed on time so that I can have proper rest, right? So exercise. How many of us have on our calendars that time for proper exercise. Again, I'm not gonna tell you you need to exercise, that's up to you. But if that's important to you, if that's one of your values, to be the kind of person who takes care of their physical health, that time has to be on your calendar. Or don't make it a priority. Don't you know profess that that's important to you and every year feel guilty that you don't get enough exercise and you don't eat right if it's not on your calendar. So that's yeah. the you domain. Then the relationship domain. You know, Part of the reason that we have this loneliness epidemic around the world these days is because the amount of time set aside in people's schedules for regular social engagements has decreased precipitously. As the world has become more secular, particularly in the Western world, as people don't attend church like they used to, not that mm. I'm advocating for that, I'm a secular person myself, mm. but what we have lost is that regular engagement. This isn't new. This didn't come from social media. Yeah. Robert Putnam wrote about this in the 1990s in his book, Bowling Alone, about how fewer people were in bowling leagues. Now, in the UK, you have something very nice. You have that this pub culture uh, that I think gives people that. Sadly, not right now. <laughs> not right now. I know. I know. But we need to. But you know, if yeah. there's a silver lining to this pandemic, I don't know if you've noticed this, but you know, I have these frequent Zoom calls with my family. It's on our calendar every Saturday night. We get together over Zoom, and you know, I see my parents, and my daughter sees her grandparents, and it's beautiful. So I hope mm. that we have that time in our schedules. Hopefully it won't have to just be over Zoom. But the important thing here is to schedule that time. If your yeah. parents are important to you, if your siblings are important to you, if your best friends are important to you, have that time. Don't give people just you know the remnants of whatever scraps of time are left over. Have that time planned ahead on your schedule. And then finally, when the in the work domain, there are two types of work. We have what we call reactive work and reflective work. Reactive work is about you know, reacting to the messages, reacting to the emails, reacting to the meetings, reacting to anybody who taps you on the shoulder. That's the reactive work. Now, that's how most people spend most of their day. Reflective work is the kind of work where real work gets done, right? This is the kind of work we can only do without distraction. The thinking, the planning, the strategizing, this is where real work gets done. The problem is, very few people set that time aside. Now, I'm not saying you have to spend your entire day in isolation doing re reflective work. Some people's job is only reflect. Like if you're a computer coder, uh, mm. you have to be deep in concentration or you're going to have bugs in your code. But for most people, there's some mix of reactive and reflective. The problem is most people feel comfortable doing the reactive work, right? I'm just going to sit here and let stuff happen to me. That's much easier than thinking ahead and saying, wait a minute, what, what actually needs to get done? And when do I need to isolate myself and be indistractable so that I can really think? Uh, which, yeah. let me tell you, is a huge competitive advantage over everyone else in your field because nobody's doing it. Nobody's yeah. setting aside time to actually think. But it's absolutely necessary to do our best work. Yeah. Well, what 
what I really like about the way you've taken us through those is that there's such, it's not a, it's not a, it's heavy because we have to do hard work. We have to think, but it's also liberating the way that you talk about leisure, the way that you talk about relationships and the importance that you give them, even the ordering in which you, you told that sort of helps to sort of prioritize the other aspects, which like you say, can often become afterthoughts or can become just slotted in around. So I find that a really optimistic message and fun to think that we should, when we're doing whatever we're doing, really be fully in. And there's no laws about what is right or wrong. And I like the way you describe, you know, you're not assigning like a moral code to things. It's what is right for you, but then do it fully. I find that really helpful to hear the breakdown. I'm very curious about how you're doing it right now. Obviously, you have probably been doing this over a period of time, and you've talked about how one should experiment a bit with with it and, and refine. Have you now reached a sort of a place where you got the perfect time boxed week and you barely need to refine or yeah, how does so it work in, for you? Until something changes. So uh, the idea here is that you're not a drill sergeant. That's not the right frame of mind. You don't want to be a drill sergeant. You want to be a scientist. So what does a scientist do? A scientist has a hypothesis they run an experiment, and then they adjust based on the data they collect to, to run the next experiment. And that's how we should think about time boxing. So we make uh, a plan for our in our calendar for the week ahead, and this takes all of 15 minutes a week, right? So every Sunday in my calendar, I have 15 minutes to plan the week ahead, where I'll time box that week ahead, and I'll ask myself, how do I make that, that schedule easier to follow based on what, the data I collected from the previous week? So if mm. I say, you know what, I really need some more time for writing, or I really need less time, less meetings, or I have an important meeting, which means that I won't have time to do something else I, that's very important to me that's part of my values, I'll adjust that accordingly for the week ahead. So I'm making small adjustments from week to, he- week, to week. The first time you make a time box calendar, that maybe will take you 15, 20 minutes, but then week to, from week to week, you're making very small adjustments, right? You're just tweaking a little bit here, a little bit there, uh, and it becomes easier and easier the more you do it until something big changes. So when we move from the United States to Singapore, and now I have to, you know, change my time zones when I do, you know, when I take calls, mm-hmm. well, now I had to, you know, reconfigure yeah. that schedule and, and, and adjust it. So week to week, it's small changes. Uh, but when there's a big change in your life, that's when you, you know, you need to make uh, a bigger changes. But the idea here is that, you know, in the day, you're not going to make any changes. So you're going to try and follow that schedule as closely as possible. We all get distracted from time to time. That's okay. But the difference between a person who is distractible and a person who is indistractable is that the indistractable person realizes that a mistake repeated more than once is a decision. Poelo Coelho said that a mistake repeated more than once is a decision. So how many people out there complain about getting distracted again and again? How many times can we blame Facebook for distracting us, for God's sakes? Okay, don't we eventually say, all right, enough, (laughs) right? And we take (laughs) some action, right? Eventually, we need to do something about it. So an indistractable person understands, look, there's only three causes of distraction, an internal trigger, an external trigger, or a planning problem. That's it. There's only three potential sources. What can I do today to prevent getting distracted tomorrow. And they make adjustments in their life using forethought, right? Using these techniques in the book to make sure that they don't keep getting distracted by the same distractions again and again. Yeah, that's great. Well, it's nice to know that it only should take 15 minutes because in my mind, that was one of the concerns that, because I I recall you've even talked about, you put chores on there, you put household 
activities on there. Some of those must just become re- recurring items, yeah. do they? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, for many things, it's, you know, for, uh, you know, helping uh, uh, prepare meals for the family and, uh, you know, lunchtime and, you know, th- th- these kind of things. I know every morning, you know, so every morning I have the same kind of basic routines. But yeah, there's there's some variability from week to week, but I don't change it in the day, right? When I, f- when I make the day yep. schedule, I got to follow it. Now, if, if, if the day crashes and burns and I go way off track, no problem. I'm going to learn from it. And, and the reason we have to do that, that learning is because we know that people are susceptible to what we call the planning fallacy that on average, uh, a task will take us three times longer than we, we expect because we are terrible at planning and uh, predicting how long a task will take us because there's no feedback. You know, when we use this, this silly technique of a to-do list, uh, we have a task. We have no idea how long the task took us to complete. And so therefore, we don't learn how to be better at predicting how long it's going to take us in the future. There's no feedback cycle. Whereas yeah. when you plan the time, when you say, I am going to work on this task for 30 minutes, five days a week, whatever it is, then you can start to assess, hmm, how much progress am I making towards this goal? How quickly am I progressing? And I can make adjustments accordingly. So if I have a deadline, right, most people, they say, oh, I'll add it to my to-do list. Hopefully it'll get done in time. How do you know? You don't know. Whereas when you put that time in your schedule, you say, hmm, okay, so for the past three days, I worked on this for an hour, for three days. How much progress did I make? Then I can predict how much longer it's going to take me to finish the task, and I can make adjustments accordingly because there's this feedback cycle. Yeah, that's really helpful, and it's nice to know that that's part of your Sunday ritual, it seems like. I've got two more questions that I, I definitely want to ask before we run out of time. One is about a typical time boxed day. I would love to hear what that might look like if you're comfortable sharing that. Absolutely. Uh, and then I've got a social dilemma question as well. So let's 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 try and fit in both. Yeah. So um, what does my average day look like? So um, you know what? Let me. I'll, I'll open up my calendar while we're speaking <laughs> here, and I'll look at it and just tell you what's on it for tomorrow. So uh, I have breakfast with my. So I wake up at uh, seven fifteen every day. Uh, I have breakfast with my family until eight. Uh, so I'm responsible for for making breakfast, and then we sit together until eight. Uh, from eight to ten for two hours is when I take my my calls because I'm in Singapore. So that's prime time for me to take calls mm-hmm. in the states primarily. Uh, so that's when I do my calls. Then I have an hour of of learning. I, I I have an hour of some kind of learning. So right now I'm I'm trying to learn some some Mandarin Chinese because I'm in Singapore. So I have one hour block for that. Then I have an hour for email from eleven to twelve. Then twelve to one I have my lunch time with my family. And then on Fridays I have an hour where I devote to, to physical fitness. So I'm I'm going for a swim. And then I have uh, thirty minutes for uh, showering up. And then from 2.30 to 5, I have my long block of writing time on Friday. Then I have time in the afternoon from 5 to 6 for listening to articles. I love to listen to articles while I exercise. Mm. I use this uh, technique called temptation bundling that I talk about in the book where I uh, multitask. I actually believe you can multitask, and this is a wonderful way to do it, where you bundle temptations. So I can listen to articles. I had this really bad habit of reading articles online right? The New York Times, the Atlantic, you know, all kinds of fascinating writing out there, blogs. But I realized, of course, that these companies, these media companies don't have my best interest in heart. The, the New York Times could care less whether whether I should be reading the news. No, <laughs> they just want me on their site as much as possible. That's how they make money. Um, so I never read on their site anymore. I only listen to articles while I'm going on a walk. So I have an hour walk. 
And then I have time for, for dinner uh, at six with my family. And then uh, on Fridays, I have an open evening uh, where we do in my family what we call spontaneous fun. So it sounds like an oxymoron, <laughs> but in fact, uh, we have that time planned for family time. Now you say, well, why would you plan that time for family? You know, like what, what you have to be so uh, specific about planning time for your family. Well, here's the thing. I plan that time. So I know from seven to nine 30 is time with my family. Why did I plan that time? Because now I have blocked out that time to know what I will not be doing right? I will not be checking email. I will not be on social media. I will not be doing something that I don't want to do. I want to spend time with my family. It has been time blocked for that time. So that's what I do on Friday evening. Oh, that's thank you so much for sharing that. And I think you make such an important point there. We laugh about this you know, planned spontaneity, but I, I rate on a Myers Briggs. I, I used to rate as somebody who was very high on spontaneous. But as I've grown up, I've realized that if you really want to be spontaneous, especially when you've got a family and things, you need to plan it. It's true. You, it's true. You can't you can't be by the skin of your teeth, otherwise you end up everything is a blur. So I, I that that makes total sense, but it also really helps to sort of put it in, in make it really clear to hear your time box schedule. And yeah. It does sound yeah and that's nice. just I one thing. Very- and by the way, you don't have, you know, starting out, people get it very intimidated by, oh my gosh, I got planned out seven days a week. That seems like a lot of work. You don't have to do all that, right? You can start with one day. How about you just plan your Monday or plan out your Saturday even, you know, plan out what your typical Saturday will look like uh, ahead of time. And then what you'll find is that those days are glorious, right? That in fact, constraints provide freedom, right? Because I don't know about you, but especially with a family, if you've got kids, what are the worst feelings? What do you guys want to do today? I don't know what I want to do today. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I know I got a bunch to do. I got to do laundry. I got to do dishes. I got to do this. I got to do that. And I got to entertain my kids as opposed to like, no, now I know. Okay, I've got time for lunch. I've got time for, you know, mail. I've got time for all these things I have to do. It's in my calendar. I know I don't have to stress about it. I planned ahead. It's coming. And including time for social media, right? Normally, uh, you know, not on Friday nights, as I just described, but normally every night I have time to go on social media. I love social media. It's wonderful. I connect with my readers, my friends. There's no way I would be in touch with, with these people in my life had it not been for these fabulous technologies. But that time is planned for in my schedule. Yeah. Yeah, that that brings me nicely on to the other question that I had, which I'm, I must ask you before we run out of time. And that is about the social dilemma, which many people uh, listening to this will have watched on Netflix. Uh, it was quite a dramatic uh, way of depicting social media. For some people, it was a wake up call, right? Um, because there were things in there. I learned a few new things. But I know that you and I were both left wanting at the end sort of and and what are you going to give us a tip now what what do we do is you know but more importantly you are actually interviewed for the social dilemma so i am here to hear the kind of inside scoop now what 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 did what did you say in that interview and uh what why didn't they include it <laughs> um so yeah so they interviewed me now 3 years ago which is part of my so i have a lot of beef with that movie uh and and my <laughs> my biggest beef with the movie is that it's the equivalent of calling Jaws a documentary about sharks, right? It's it's slightly based in reality, but not by much. <laughs> you know, like, yes, sharks do swim in water and sometimes they attack people, but Jaws is not an accurate depiction of, you know, a, na- a, na- a nature documentary about sharks. The social dilemma is just that. It was entertainment much more than uh, than any kind of, you know, useful documentary. Uh, And I think the portrayal of such is really doing people a disservice. Ironically enough, that movie 
could have been bankrolled by the social media companies themselves. Because <laughs> they want you to believe that you're powerless. They want you to believe what the film promoted, which is that you are this voodoo doll that they can manipulate. And, you know, they have those scary algorithms in that room that's, you know, hijacking your brain. Nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, let's be honest here, right? You're not freebasing Facebook. You're not, you know, injecting Instagram. You're not snorting Snapchat here. They are not drugs, people. We need to stop using this language of addiction. It is not addicting the vast majority of people, right? We know that there's a whole science of addiction. It, it, it's disrespectful to people who actually suffer from the pathology of addiction. And it's infantilizing and disempowering to tell people that they are powerless. You know why? Yeah. Because they believe it, yeah. right? When you tell somebody, hey, your kid can't stop using social media because they're addicted. It's hijacking their brain. There's nothing they can do about it. Guess what? They don't even try. Why should you? I am powerless. I have to wait for the geniuses in government to fix the problem. Maybe the government, the, the companies will do it for me. Why would we wait, right? Tell me, what will Zuckerberg do if you turn off notifications on your phone? What will <laughs> they do if you plan the time in your day to use these products on your schedule, not theirs? Nothing. They can't do anything about it. So as opposed to sitting here twiddling our thumbs and saying, well, there's nothing I can do. Why even try? Why don't we do something about it? And that's what Indistractable is all about. And that's why they didn't include my interview. I sat down with them for three hours and they didn't include any of my interview. I'm in the credits. Uh, actually, as the credits are rolling, if you notice, that is the only part in the entire movie where they give any solutions. And you know what they say? Turn off notifications. How about that? <laughs> right? As the credits are rolling. So I think it was great that the movie brought up this issue. I'm, I'm glad that it increased awareness of you know, distraction in our lives. But one, distraction is not just about technology. Let me tell you, people have been distracted by all sorts of things for a very, very long time. And two, I think it was very irresponsible for them to not give solutions. And I gave them solutions. Yeah. They had It's like a doctor telling you, hey, uh, you, know, you, you have a horrible disease, uh, and the doctor has the medicine and doesn't even tell you about it. Yeah. That's malpractice. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And you share some fantastic hacking back strategies. And you also talk about how there are simple things that you can do, like clicking on the exact link to a Facebook group. And it was really, it was good to hear all, all of your suggestions there. And there are ways that you can improve your YouTube feed. There are such practical things right. and resources. I mean, and, and those I see as the tips. And then obviously you can go a lot deeper. And then I've just reviewed 120 academic papers that talk about how you can use it more constructively to support even your basic psychological needs better. So there is so much there. And we, we could carry on and we could have another whole conversation about using uh, social Let's media do that, more positively. I would, I would love to because you're, you've researched this uh, in such depth and I would love to talk more about that. So let's do a follow-up one about, about going deeper into uh, the positive aspects and how we can make sure we can use these things for good. That would be fantastic. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, Nir. I have really enjoyed talking to you and I can't wait to share this with all of our listeners. So, oh, It was my pleasure, Maya. Looking forward to doing it again soon. Thank you for listening to the Golden Hour podcast. If you found it valuable, please forward it to others who you think might benefit from listening. And be sure to subscribe to get the new episodes when they release. And if you're listening on iTunes, please leave a rating or review as it really helps the show to grow. You can find me at Maya Goodka on Twitter and Instagram, and you can find links to what we cover in the episodes in the show notes. Thanks for listening and see you next time.